podcast listeners, welcome to episode 28 of Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, outliers, unconventional in Singapore. Try to see things as how they see it and to learn from them. Some of these individuals include Claire Chang, the woman behind the Banyan Tree Resort Group, Taking Soon, who's architect behind the iconic People's Park Complex, Asian Pang, and a whole lot more. And today on the show, we have Peter Ho. He's the CEO of Hope Technique, an engineering company specializing in unmanned systems, defense, biomedical, smart logistics, and special vehicles. It sounds like a mouthful. Basically, those are all the secret uh, high-level projects. One of the things I know, and we actually talk about a lot more of other projects uh, in the interview, uh, this project is the famous Raid Rhino, and they have been designing the last four version of it for the Singapore Civil Defence Force. Uh, Peter is also an adjunct professor at National University of Singapore, NUS, and Singapore University of Technology and Design, SUTD. Uh, we spoke. We spoke a lot. Blah, blah, blah. We spoke a lot in this conversation, and some of the highlights include the story of how Peter bought the rarest car in Singapore, uh, the Lotus. How they hope Technic clinched the deal with off the Raid Rhino project, and why did Peter leave his job as a chief engineer at Petronas? I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Peter Ho. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Did you drive in your um, beautiful old vintage classic car today? No, no. I think the problem with vintage cars is that they, you don't know when they're going to start, actually. And I don't think this morning was one of the days that... What, did you even try it today? No. no. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it's a Monday, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so... So I also drive like a little Vespa, so I know like the, the quirks and ticks of all this yes. vintage car. But I mean, I'm just curious to know because I've never been on the car side of vintage. Mm. Um, what, what, what is it that makes you fall in love with this? Um, I mean, you have a few, right? I've, I've got one old car. Oh yeah, the, yeah. this is the uh, Lotus? Lotus 7. Yeah, uh, what do I like about it? I think it was a design era, and a time where regulations and all were very different. And so the cars were a lot lighter, a lot simpler. Um, I think as a, a hands-on person, I enjoy them because um, with that simplicity, you can actually fix the cars yourself. Whereas on the modern cars these days, if something goes wrong, you get an, a warning message on your dashboard. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, I used to build race cars. I could open the front bonnet, stare into the engine, and I can tell you I've got nothing I can do because they're just too complicated. Whereas the old cars, you know... Um, a screwdriver, a hammer, duct tape, and WD-40, and you'll probably fix the car. So that, that will work. And what is it about this particular vintage car, or is it just so happened to be? Oh no, this was the one that I always wanted. Oh. Um, it's, it's a cute little car with no doors, no roof, um, weighs under 500 kilos. Um, in many ways, the Lotus brand, that's one of the... Um, one of the cars that really stood out in, in its history and, and it's, I think, the, one of the most replicated uh, cars in the world now, uh, short of the AC Cobra. So these two are kind of like the things that people remember. Mm. And I, I like it. It's just so tiny. It's, but it scares, scares the crap out of me. Yeah, no, I mean, also, like, you think Lotus, you wouldn't think of the car that you have right now, right? Because yes. the, the total shape and form is so different. And, and if it's more like, a happy, if you look at, I mean, if you go around looking at your car and then, oh, people will have a smile on their face versus, versus like the current Lotus these days, be like, okay, well, that guy's trying to be cool, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, uh, uh, every time I do take the car out, which is maybe twice a year, um, 
and you see kids on, on the street, you know, it's, the kids just go nuts. Uh, and, and my nieces and all um, think that uh, Uncle Peter's got one cool car. Uh, you know, but the parents obviously said they can never ride in it because it looks just too dangerous. <laughs> is, is, it, is it that dangerous as compared to... I mean, your head is around this high okay. from the ground when you drive. So you go next to a bus. Your kind of your eye is at the center of the wheel, like, like that low. And the exhaust pipe... So you on can't the... really see much. No, and the worst thing is people can't see you either. <laughs> so... Uh, I think there's a simple rule, right? If you look in the rearview mirror and you don't see the driver's eyes, right? They are not seeing you either. So, yeah, and the exhaust pipe on a bus is literally kind of at the height of your... Right, so it's like blowing <laughs> your face. So I usually drive it like 4 o'clock in the morning and you get home at like 6 o'clock. And that's it. Because um, when the traffic hits the road, it's it's kind of bad for your health. And, and <laughs> that's true, that's true. Seriously. Well, like, I drive a, a Vespa, right? So I know. Because you're higher, you see. Okay, fair you're enough. You're higher, you can weave in and no, out. But like, you know, like, if I'm, if I'm next to the exhaust pipe, I'm feeling the heat. The... I never knew the exhaust pipe was at the side. And, yeah, and then I was just like, why, why? I thought it was at the back. Like, what happened? Yeah. Yeah, it's only when you drive these old, or ride these old toys, right? Uh, yeah. And you start realizing where everybody's exhaust pipe is and... Yeah. yeah, that's one thing you know. You're kind of like a mobile smoke tester for vehicles. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, this bus, really bad smoke, man. He needs to get this thing serviced, man. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. one day we... we, we and this, this is one of the only um, yes. other... Yes. And tell me about the story about the, the car. Like, how do you came to be and when um, was that? I picked it up, I think, a couple of years ago. Um... I knew its history. It's been in Singapore since the early 60s. And um, two, three owners before me was my late boss when I was building race cars. So he had the car and it was in the factory in Singapore. And I, that was back, back in Petronas? Yeah. Okay. So he had a few cars in Singapore. And of all the cars, that would be the one that I would be, you know, when no one's in the factory at night, that's the one you jump inside and you make car noises. You go brum, 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 brum. I, that, that was the car. Um, he sold it off to somebody else. Um, I, f- I heard from the grapevine that um, that gentleman wanted to let go of that car. And so um, I gave him a call. And uh, I think buying the car was more of an interview oh. than a, business, uh, a financial transaction. <laughs> um, I had to have references before he would even reply me okay. a price. He will be like, uh, how do you know the car? Who do you know? Blah, 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 blah. And so basically, I had to say, you know, I know this person, I know this person. And then he would, he actually called them oh, to make to, sure to, the references were, were real. Okay. And then in the end, I, I passed the uh, audit. Uh-huh. And so I could, I could go and um, pay him a visit. And yeah. Um, and even then, like, the, the price was still not on the table. It's just like, yeah, I mean, now you could visit me. Yeah, now you can visit me. Uh, now we can talk about it. I was fortunate that um, his wife was doing gardening. And so I, I, you know, I'm interested in gardening. So I talked to, to his wife and, and small talk and stuff like that. And then um, when he came out, and wife said, you know, this young man really likes the car and you've got too many cars. You should let go of the car to him today. And that was it. I mean, yeah, the wife. So you won, you won the, yeah. the, the, the deal by the sometimes, wife. sometimes it's tactics, you know. Uh, I think I was very fortunate. I had lobbied in that five minutes. Um, with the best spot, uh, supporter of all. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. Fantastic. Got it, at last. Yeah, and also, 
um, I think let's go back, rewind that back a little bit, back in your AC days, I was just talking about it. Like, I think people don't know is that you're actually a pretty good debater. Went all the way to New Zealand? Yeah, uh, that was Made finals. Five. Yeah, we did the finals, we won the finals. Um, yeah, that was a good time, 95 or 96. Why, why debating, and, you know? Um, I am so athletic. <laughs> I mean, if I was in a rugby team, I would either be the post or the ball. Well, you could also join theatre, what? No, I can't, I can't act. I, I can't. I, I, I'm... No, no, there, there are too many things I'm bad at. Okay. Um, um, I did a bit of public speaking as a competition in secondary school mm. when I was in Fairfield Methodist. Mm. And then uh, I think there's a natural progression to go into debates. Uh, yeah. And having had a bit of background in public speaking, yeah. they said, oh, try out in debates. And... I would say I had a fantastic team and I had a fantastic coach, uh, Gita Craftfield, and she really pushed us. And uh, I think she started with, for me, she started with rubbish. Rubbish? What do you mean by rubbish? I mean, I still remember the first debate I ever did. The whole, it was an inter-class debate. And the whole premise, I can't remember the notion, but I gave the analogy that the the other side's uh, debate argument was as consistent as Roti Prata. I still remember it because I, I just met up with some of my old friends just a few weeks ago. And instead of talking about the subject matter and why they're inconsistent, my speech was just purely on what Roti Prata is and why it's inconsistent. But is that the topic? No, it wasn't. But I won the, I won the audience over. So we kind of survived that debate. So imagine for, for uh, Gita Craftfield to start with someone of that level, which is really that level, uh, and then take that team to intercollegiates, uh, the nationals, and uh, the, uh, I wouldn't really call it the worlds, but um, we had New Zealand and Australia and then Singapore, mm-hmm. and we competed across New Zealand, yeah. and I think Australia was defending champions under 21. So uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was that. So yeah, uh, just very fortunate, um, had a very, very good coach, and would you say that you are an extrovert, you know, or introvert? I think by definition, introvert. Um, I need personal time, alone time, to um, recoup, like like to to re-energize. Or you are like more like an introverted extrovert. Oh, that's deep, man. <laughs> no, but basically, like, would you? I mean, like, because a lot of people sometimes they really just need the like, a lot of alone time because it's it's all like a skill basis, right? So it's like one to ten, and then you know, like, will you be more like the ages, like towards the extremes, or like somewhere like a tree, or you know? I think somewhere closer to the center. Okay. Uh, but alone time is needed, mm. um, and and it's it's good to, to have time to reflect on stuff like that. Um, it's nice to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, and you know, after graduated from NUS, right, in 2004, you landed a job as a mechanic in um, Petronas. Um, and then, um, I don't know how, so this is the part that confuses me, which is you got promoted chief engineer uh, in a short, like, one-year time. So, like, how, how did that happen, <laughs> you know? Wow. So, actually, I graduated in 03. Um, okay. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm very happy if it's all four. It means I'll be one year younger. Uh, but what happened is that, so I, I joined uh, Petronas Touring Cars in England. Mm. And we were running the British Touring Car Championship. 
Um, I learned the car as the lowest ranking mechanic. Um, I learned how to do the composite work. I learned how to do the welding, um, spannering the car, fixing the car, fixing Humpty Dumpty and everything. Um, and then the, the thing is that the, it reached a stage where they wanted to bring the package back to Asia. Okay, so you were in England. Yeah. And then you... you they wanted to, to bring back the package to Asia and yeah. then run the Asian Championship. Um, I think I was just very fortunate that uh, my late uh, boss, Datuk David Wong, um, trusted and said that he, he, felt, he felt that I had enough knowledge and capability to actually take over that team and run it. Um, and so I've never, unfortunately he's passed away, I've never found out the reason why he made that uh, lapse of judgment, I would say. But, okay, well, like, maybe you don't, but, but like, there's how many people in the team, you know, like, why you in such a short time? No idea. Yeah? No idea. Even if you take a, like, a blind step at it? No, no idea. Okay. Uh, I, I think I was just fortunate. Um, maybe it was just right place, right time. We're coming back to Asia, um, relocating. The, uh, it was a very global team. And to relocate the entire global team back to Asia um, would be very difficult. So uh, you need a continuity of the team. Um, we were racing the Proton Waja um, that we basically build and engineer ourselves. So the amount of, the, literally it would be a, a two, three dozen persons in the world would actually know the car. And other than that, nobody else would know how to engineer or fix the car. So I think the pool of people who could actually work on the car was very limited yeah. um, but even then you're, you're still I mean with the team so the team knows the, yeah. the car right and I'm sure there's some people who has been there longer yeah. than you know than I was just fortunate okay. and a lot of them had chosen not to relocate to Asia okay. um, so the team when we were in England came from um, Malaysia came from South Africa came across England um, and so for a lot of them in the motor racing scene, um, Europe is kind of like the Mecca. You go, you, you, you compete, you engineer, you mechanic, you spanner for all your life. And you want to be in Europe. Um, whether you want to choose to go to Formula One or you want to choose to stay in touring cars or GT cars, whatever. Uh, single seaters. Um, Europe is it. Either you go to, you stay in Europe, um, CG around um, England or you go to the US and do NASCAR or, some, or Indies or something. I mean, these are the two um, areas that you really have the professional um, community. So I would suppose that a lot of times, a lot of teammates, previous teammates I had, did not want to get out and come to Asia. In some ways, it's a dangerous career move. Because when you come to Asia, the competition is nowhere... Uh, Okay, I'll give you this fine example. When we raced an Asian Touring Car Championship, it's, it's nice, it's good. You get a couple of thousand people watching you live, which, is not, which doesn't compare well when you do British Touring Car and you get thirty to 40,000 spectators and you're on live TV on a Sunday afternoon and there is a huge following across not just England but the world. And, you know, you, you go from that kind of uh, environment into something where... You, you don't have that disability. I think it can be a curricular. I, I took the chance. I took the leap. Um, so maybe, you know, um, I was just fortunate. Just, just lucky. In two years in, um, you decided to make a move to, to get out and, and start the company that you're, you're in now with three other friends of yours. 
I assume being a chief engineer at that age, um, it's a pretty good gig, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much you get paid, but you know, for, for, for that age, you know. Decent. Decent. Very decent. Yeah, yeah. Fortunate. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and it's only, say what, like two years, and back in the days where people are still pretty loyal to the company, they stay like more than five years. But these days is very, you know, people, okay, they move jobs. Two years like, would be good. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. But so, so wh- wh- why? And, and, and were you, yeah, what was the reason? I think it was actually quite sad. So, um, like I mentioned, we used to build a proton wajah. I mean, we'd engineer it, we have the drawings, we'll make parts. If the car's not fast enough, we will make the car faster. Um, when we reached the year of 2005, um, Petronas signed a deal with BMW Motorsports um, to sponsor BMW in Formula 1. And the side effect to it was that all the race cars um, from Formula 1 downwards and touring cars as well, we would adopt BMW cars as, as a home mandate. So we raced this race in Oschersleben in Germany. Um, and I quickly realized that it was going to be a very different complexion. Um, I've got, I, I think it's a humongous challenge. Um, they are very sophisticated cars, the world touring cars. Um, very well built, very well engineered by BMW Motorsport. Um, but the chief engineer's job was to keep the cars running. And it became different. Um, you cannot build your own parts anymore. Um, it, by homologation rules, everything has to be bought from the manufacturer, which would be BMW Motorsport. So in the past, when drivers smacked up the car and they break the suspension arms, we've hand-fabricated the arms. We had the jigs, we had the parts, we had the tools, we were welders, we would do it. Based on the calculations, we'll make little improvements on our own design. But now when you go to BMW Motorsport and the um, World Touring Car, um, no, you can't. You literally go to the counter and you say, left front arm, please. And you get that and you spun it and put it in the car. I think it became very different from what my dream was. Uh, my dream was to build, literally. And now you sort of got demoted back into a mechanic where you are using parts and like, you know, putting it in. Wow. I, 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 well, like, I mean, not demoted in rank, yeah. but, you know, as a job role. It was... I think when I was a mechanic in um, touring cars, it was... We were the fabricators. As a mechanic, I was a fabricator. This is now um, just different. Um, it didn't appeal to me. Uh, mechanics is, I think, is a... Having done that as a job, I think it's a very difficult career. Uh, there's a lot of knowledge uh, on the ground, especially in the world of motorsports when time is not measured in months, weeks, days, or hours. Um, we used to have to turn a car around between races within half an hour, and the cars would come up a bit better because in touring cars, contact is rubbing is racing. So you could be missing a bumper, you could be missing a rear door, sometimes the car is missing a wheel, and you've got half an hour to turn Humpty Dumpty around. As a mechanic, you know, that was the life. Um, you know the car so well. You, you run to the car looking at it and you know exactly which tools to carry. Like you could tell this is a size 17, this is size 8, this is blah, blah, blah. And, and you go for it. So uh, the BMW stint after that, I, I become a, uh, a, uh, an engineer. Um, that's not what I wanted. So decided to leave. Mm. Would you say that like your sort of drive 
and your sort of hunger for creation is normal throughout your cohort of people back in NUS, or you think like you stood out uh, from the rest where they just want a paycheck? I don't think it's a question of paycheck. Um, I think everybody has a different ambition, a different dream, yeah. a different purpose that they define. Um, for me, I like building stuff. And when it is the flavor of the month or the year, which innovation and building stuff is good, I, I think I, there's a bit of recognition, which I'm very fortunate and blessed for. But outside that, I think the rest of my cohort mates, you know, they have gone on to define their own success. And, and in many ways, I look back, they were investing in it. You know, I had friends that um, wanted a, a, a good, balanced life, I would say. Right. From my, my own point of view, they would have a more balanced life. Um, they would have invested in a, in a sensible career. Um, they would have invested in, a, in their family, uh, in their hobbies, um, in things that they like. They would be um, dancing. They oh, would sure, be sure. playing an instrument. Um, they will be touring the world. Um, they will be having four kids. Well, like, I'm not saying that one is good or the other yeah. is bad, right? But I think what the, the sort of like true line that I want to draw across is sort of comparing the students now and the students before. You know, was it because back in the days, it was sort of, you know, things were a lot more like dreamable than, you know, now you finish, you, you get a degree, you start off as a mechanic and then you work your way up. But like, I think the 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 tenacity to dream, uh, I just I so hence you know want to compare it to back then. Um, I think it's the same. Nothing has changed. Um, in many ways, I I think it's a little bit. There are more opportunities for people to dream now. Um, for one thing, well, there's the internet. Um, the amount of exposure you get um, is a lot higher. Imagine when I was um, in university, I started university in 99 um yes there was internet but you know it was not what we see today uh we had icq uh oh um and then moving forward the other thing is that the the entire view of startups and following your dream is a lot stronger now um back then if you there i don't think i heard the word startup um until the last few years I think back then, if you said that you're going to do your own company with three other friends, uh, it's called, man, you know, I thought you guys would be able to find a job, you know. You mean, you mean it's gotten that bad that you guys couldn't find a job and you've got to do your own, comp- your, your own gig, right? So I, I think it's different. I think the expectations and the acceptance to take that kind of risk is, is more popular these days. Um. And you also, um, I, I, I saw on SUTD, it's like you go in and is, do you lecture or do you just sub- do it as a community to, for the course? Um, for SUTD, um, I occasionally guest lecture to, if, if they want somebody to uh, tell their students uh, lies. Um, yeah, it's, it's always nice to reach out to the next generation. What do you see as the difference between um, that generation that you, know, you graduated from versus the current generation now? Nothing. Nothing? I think it's all the same. Okay. I think it's all the same. We're, we're all trying to sell class in the same way. <laughs> uh, we're all trying to find whether it's a 10-year series. Yeah. Uh, we will all do, we'll always do our reports and study on the last day, last moment possible. 
Um, we always believe that this semester was the worst semester and then we will survive and we get the next one. So I think as students, nothing has changed. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess we're coming back to the whole starting a company thing. So, so what happened? So, I mean, of course the job was bad, right? And so did you like started like calling your friends like, hey, are you also jobless? <laughs> we should start something. No. Um, so with the other three uh, founders, uh, Michael, Kianglun and Jeff, um, we all have one common trait, which is uh, when we were studying engineering in NUS, um, NUS had this race car program called Formula SAE. It's an international competition when students design and build a race car from scratch and they compete in one of the race sites in the world, whether it's in Europe or America. Um, I started that program with Professor Sia Ka Hing uh, in 2000, 2001. Um, and the other three founders all came from the same thing through the years. Um, so one of those sessions that we started talking at, as an alumni, you know, we, we kind of known each other. And we started talking, we all started having this uh, desire. So uh, Michael, um, one of the other co-founders, was actually Petronas with me. We were both uh, teammates together. And we both felt that same thing. Then when we started talking with Jeff and Kianglun, um, we agreed that, you know, that we wanted to continue being engineers. Um, and that was our dream. And so we decided, uh, based on a certain approach, that um, we would do it. And so, come 2nd of May 2006, we did it. We started the company. And the other two, uh, uh, not in Petronas, quit their job to join? No, uh, it, it took a while. Um, we had a fantastic, highly funded startup of $10,000. Each of you, 2005. Yeah. Um, and trust me, that doesn't really last very long when you're running an engineering company. And so, for that reason, I think by prudence, we all agreed that uh, Lex experiment. And then let's do a staggered start. What was, what was the idea and what was the approach when you first started the company? Wow. Um, we wanted to... Because it probably is very different now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so oh, like, yeah. what was the first idea? So, um, when we were building race cars, we found that um, no matter which team we worked for and whichever country we were in, we will always buy the same pit lane equipment. That means the garage equipment. May they be the stands of the cars, the little pumps, uh, little setup tools, and we'll pay princely money for blocks of metal. And we said, you know, I mean, why, why all this? We could just build that kind of equipment and sell it to all the teams in the world, which was the starting thesis. Uh, right now, I think if we move um, to four or five decimal places, um, it doesn't reflect on our income statement, like 0.01%. Yeah, I won't even hit that. That's how much we sell of that stuff. We, we do kind of try and keep it alive, although it doesn't appear on our website or anything like that. Uh, but there's still a few shelves of that equipment that we look back and we're like, oh, that's our DNA, you know? So yeah, that's, that's, that was the idea. Okay, um, so the idea was, um, you guys saw these super expensive tools, you think you can do it for cheaper, yeah. and four of you guys come together and say, let's make these tools, they are better, uh, yeah. faster, cheaper, yeah. and then you, you put 10,000, what's the budget? Ooh, and big time, man. Five <laughs> digits, man. What was the first tool that you, 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 all of you? Wow, it's called an elephant leg. <laughs> I'm going to really struggle to define this. 
So on these race cars, touring and uh, GT cars, you've got these inboard um, carjacking systems okay. powered by compressed air. Yeah. So when the car comes in, you plug in the airline, it goes four pistons or three pistons, and it raises the car. So after it's, uh, you raise it up inside the pit, you can actually put it on a stand and then retract the legs. And then if you put something on that, you could step on top of that axle, that stand one more time. Oh. So you could use that, that, that pneumatic lifting thing more than once. So suddenly, when you want to fix a car, um, you, you, want the, you want the space below when I'm lying down. Yeah. With, with just the air line, it'll just be this, around 230 mm in height. So when you do that twice, you can get 400, which is, whoa, that's a lot. And it's fast, it's quick, it's efficient. So um, it was not very popular. We did not invent the idea. Um, but they, back then, nobody even knew where to buy them from. They weren't even on the catalogs of the biggest uh, retailers in the motorsport world. So we said, oh, let's do it. Oh, so it was there. So this, this elephant leg thing, but then... Yeah, it was like one of those things like, oh man, they got elephant legs. And where do you buy it from? Oh, I got no idea. It came with this other race car that I bought. You know, that's, that's how teams saw it. So we went on an online forum, yeah. racecarsdirect.com. And then we advertised it um, with screen captures of our CAD drawing, our 3D CAD drawing. And so how long did it take, took to, to engineer the first version? No, the, the, the CAD drawing. Oh, it was quick. Okay, just okay. Quick. Yes, yes. So that was the first thing that you... Yes, first thing. Okay. Anyway, the early wins. So we put it on the website. And people were like, whoa. I think by the first three hours, okay. we sold seven sets. Oh, that was a big win. And we were like, come on, man. This is business. I mean, woohoo! <laughs> wow, um, I think in total in the how next. Much you, how much do you guys sell it for? That that I, I think it was something like two to three hundred US dollars a set, and they'll buy three or four sets okay. per okay. car. So you you score a win of like a few hundred bucks to a thousand bucks. But when I mean, you sold that in just a few hours. I mean, that's oh, like how difficult can business be? Okay. You know, it's something called beginner's luck, right? We used it all up in that few hours, okay? After that, man, the shit got real, man. <laughs> then, then the real pain started. You mean to engineer, to actually make the thing and deliver it? To make, to deliver, to get more sales, uh, to have enough money in the bank account to, buy the, to build the next set, or to pay utilities. Um, yeah, we, we, we used up the beginner's luck really well. So, so what, what happened after? You know, like you sold seven. Mm. Was there anything more after that? The, the same elephant leg? Yeah, maybe once, once a, a set of three of them every two weeks or something. Three weeks. And, and you, were tr you were four people trying to make this thing and ship it. At the, in your we, we staggered our start time. So at that point in time, I was the only one. Oh, you were making the two? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and actually, we outsourced the, the manufacturer. Okay. Yeah, because we had no tools. <laughs> um, That's true. We had our university laptop with us. And that was what we drew with. Right. Okay, so tell me, like, so the beginner, beginner's luck, beginner's was great, you know, like, the, the, the first start was great. So I pro they probably have, like, a, a big boost of morale. How long did that last, you guys? Three hours. <laughs> Until you're like, when when do you realize that shit hits the fans? Three hours. <laughs> After you realize that, okay, it's the emails have all happened. 
very quickly you realize the next morning nothing else happens and then the next day nothing else happens and then you start going gee okay. did you try to design another product then? no i mean the product life was only half a day old man uh and then you start realizing you start going to the other websites and then you, you got to pay to advertise and you're not really ready to ship and you haven't figured out um, how much it's going to cost in, in in detail and then you start realizing it's it's very real um, every challenge, how you get a market access, how you get to the right consumer. Um, well, so, I mean, of, of course, you know, with every start of the business, I think uh, every one of us like who worked for a boss before say, we can do this better. And then we started doing it. And then, and then after that, we are all in the same situation. It was like, oh, this is a lot harder than I think it was. <laughs> um, what did you do different after knowing that? And I read somewhere it was like 1.5 years of like trying. Yeah. Um, nothing really. I, I never thought I was smarter than my previous bosses. Uh, it's just that we were going after a different target. So in many ways, going into this engineering game um, was completely new to me. I was fortunate that I could reach out to friends' friends or friends that were in somewhere they had some advice or they were in a business, or they were working for a company that was closer to this. So you start finding out about, you know, com terms, shipping terms, insurance, bill of material, op- oh gosh, market channels, sales channels, oh man. Then you start talking to them in a coffee shop, you know, at, at lunch, in the evenings, in the mornings, and you start, you know, you start realizing there's a lot to learn, man. And you just go about doing it, and you kind of like bump your way around and make a million mistakes and just keep going. And, and did you, were you guys also designing more tools? And, and yes. So you're still the, the, the idea was still oh, making yeah. tools, making tools. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, well, the rest failed really miserably. Tell me about some of the the other tools that you made. All kinds of silly things. It was uh, it probably still is an engineering success, but more like a sales failure. I'm not sure about the engineering success. Uh, I think some of the tools that we did, we tried to um, on single seaters like formula cars. You you got these special gauges to measure the height of the car, and I thought there's a smarter way to do it with springs and plungers and a laser level line, and some were really fundamental. So for that one. The accuracy of the system was based on a laser line projector um, that would project a line. The problem with it was to get a laser that would do a flat beam that after 5 meters, 6 meters would be still very thin and not divergent. Um, We couldn't afford that and the product couldn't afford it. What the product could afford was something really cheap which by the time it reached the next beacon would be I mean, we were looking for an accuracy of half a millimeter and that laser line was three millimeters thick by the time it projected that. And we only knew about it when we had bought quite a lot of them and was all ready to make the first production run. And then we switched on and we were like, it cannot be there. <laughs> Teacher tell me laser is straight on, you know. And then you realize, yeah, it's, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. Uh, there are real-world limitations. I didn't read that part of the textbook. Uh, and yeah, so... How much, how much laser did you bought at this? I think we bought six or eight pieces. 
Okay, well, this is how many months in after that first success? Two, three months in. <laughs> okay, it's blurred. Right, there's, right, there's right. So no. much, right so much sadness in that, in that first few years and you're so frantic, right? You kind of like, you know, you try and carve it out. <laughs> you try not to, I mean, you remember these things, but it was such a blur. Mm, mm. <laughs> and, and, and at what point did you realize that, you know, like, or, or maybe you didn't, that, you know, maybe we should continue building tools. <laughs> maybe we should try to do a different thing altogether. No, we, we tried a lot. We tried a lot of stuff. So we would very quickly realize that, hey, let's provide engineering as a service. You know? Uh, so we had friends that would ask us for very unusual things. Um, you would have big 3PLs wanting a special type of trolley, like steel cage trolley. And we'll be like, yeah, we'll do it. And there we were uh, designing and building trolleys manufacturing trolleys and welding them together. And that's such a far difference from the days of building a race car, right? You build this fantastic uber-dam-dam race car and then the next thing, you know, six months later, you're building a trolley. Not something you will rave to your friend about. I would say building a trolley is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but we built a trolley. Actually, we built four trolleys. And so we started doing that and then, um, thank God, some friends... Uh, acquaintances uh, would introduce us to other companies and people that needed things done. And that's when the story uh, um, began, really. I mean, that's when Hope Technique as an engineering as a service business um, started to uh, gain traction. Mm. Because back then you were still like product-based, right? Because you guys were designing yeah. new product and yes. then you want to put it out yes. in the market. We believe we were product-based. <laughs> Right, I but I mean, but so like what, whatever the pace of pills, but back then no, you were frantic no. already. A business is a commercial uh, entity. If you can't earn money, you don't deserve to, uh, to exist. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> and um, if you, you guys racked out about $40,000 in debt. Yeah. What, what, what happened there? Um, how did that 10,000 quickly go down to negative 40,000? Buying those eight lasers was, was part of the journey. Um, yeah, it's, you know, $10,000 is it's just not enough. Um, so a year and a half odd, no salary. Um, the, as, as the four founders, we would just, we would just, we need to buy parts. Um, we would just use our own credit card. There's no such thing as a claim form because there's nothing to claim against. So we just did that. You know, anything that we needed, back borrow steel kill. Okay, we didn't kill. But, you know, you back borrow steel um, to, to do it. And, and after a year and a half as a business, you can imagine it's very easy. 40K, it's nothing. It's, it's nothing to, to rack up that kind of bill. And, 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 and you know, like... Um this, I, would, I would say these are like pretty hard times, you know, no salary and all that. How did you guys manage to still stay together as, as what you are still now? Because, you know, in bad times, that's where people show their true colors, right? That's why I would say just uh, as one of the four founders, uh, it's such a privilege uh, to work with the other three guys. Um, up to today, um, the challenges, believe it or not, are not very different. 
um, the stress that we go through and the, the worries that we have with all the different kinds of business that we are, it's exactly the same. Uh, I'll be very honest, the scale is a lot larger. Um, uh, I think it's just the mutual respect. We, we know that there's an intent. Everybody has tried their best and we, we can respect each other and know that we're we are pushing our best. And maybe as engineers, we're kind of simplistic people. If you do this, they'll get this result. No. So if we start pushing the blame to each other, will they find the result? No. So don't bother. Let's just do what actually gives us a result, which is don't go home, don't sleep, don't eat, go solve the problem out, you know, knock our heads against the wall. And if that gives us the result, that gives us the result. And if you, if you, if you could go, go back in time when you first started um, the company and, and, you know, tell the bunch of uh, four young people, it's like, do more of this and do less of this. Mm-hmm. Now, what would be those advice? I don't think... I, I don't think I would have given any advice. I think the, our, our story thus far, we have been so fortunate that I would say if there was a line, we walked that very line. Um, there was not much of leeway on either side. So I think there is no better, there's no, nothing I would dare have changed. Um, yeah, I think we cut it that close. It was really that close. And I guess one of the people, pivotal point for the company is like as advertised is always the rate right now, you know. Um, like maybe tell me a little bit about the story of like what are the series of events that happened that, you know, that, you know, you decided to take out the project because then mm-hmm. I assume that it was still like that situation. And, yeah. and even then like building, uh, 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 designing a car would increase the debt by some amount. <laughs> So we had done a few contracts with the Singapore Civil Defence Force, not on vehicles, on uh, robotic systems and, and stuff. Um, they had the fleet of uh, red rhino fire trucks, which was due for replacement, and the tender was coming up. Uh, there was one company that uh, we were very fortunate for, uh, Jixing uh, Machinery and Engineering, GSME, uh, led by John Ong. And... He was from the heavy engineering side, all in gas and really big stuff. And he had done a few vehicles for the Civil Defence Force before. But the Red Rhino is actually a very complicated piece of equipment. There's a lot of technology, a lot of equipment um, that's mechanically driven and linked pumps and stuff like that, gear ki- gearboxes and all. And he, he told us um, he didn't have the capability to actually engineer that. He said, do we want to do it together? We were like, yeah, hell yeah. Um, we thought that was really something that we would be very comfortable with. So he took the contract and we were subcontractors to him. And then we started that relationship and started building. Um, without that opportunity that John gave us, I, I don't think we would have created that, that line. So we were very fortunate for him. At the same time, I think we were very fortunate for um, the decision makers at Civil Defence and at MHA to have given... This very interesting Motley crew from GSME and Hope Technique saying that they could do it. And uh, there are very good competitors that we have in this uh, scene who have the track record, who have the expertise, who have the people, and they're really good. And they gave it to us. They, they gave that try. Uh, I think we were very aggressive in our promises, in the performance, in the size, in, in the packaging, in everything. 
in the outlook, everything we we said yes. We just turned up the wig and said, we're going to give you something that is the best that we could do. Um, and yeah, so that, that, that began the story. And at that point in time, you were still like four, four men. You know, no, we were oh, much bigger. Okay. We were six. Oh. <laughs> okay, much bigger. Right? Okay, seven, seven. <laughs> yeah, man, come on. That's, that's 25% more. No? Yeah, 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 yeah. Looking at I mean, if you're looking back, if you're looking forward. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did you need to like drop everything on hand to just to focus on this no. huge project, right? So, um, if I remember correctly, four and a half, five, of our team yeah. was on that project. Um, Michael and I were not. And I won't go into specifics of numbers, but I would say that the amount that we earn as an engineering consultancy designed to GSME was less than the price of one of the vehicles. So it's, it was strategic. Right. We wanted to do it. I mean, it's a portfolio piece, I guess. Yes. That's how you see it, right? And Michael and I just started taking on a lot more contracts with a lot more customers and we were trying to balance books mm. while the rest of the four or five guys would be building the fire trucks. Um, that was very tough. That was very, very tough. I mean, we just wanted to get it done. And yeah, the year was 2008 to 2009. And <laughs> did it. Whoa. Um, they were 20 to 22 hour days, six or seven days a week, nine months in a row. And I'm, um, unfortunately, I'm not exaggerating the numbers. Literally, we used to laugh. Um, going home was really quite silly because when you do go home, drive home and you touch your bonnet, it's warm, right? When you bathe, sleep and come back down and you touch the bonnet, it's still warm. I mean, the car has not cooled down, the interior is still cold from the aircon, and that's how little time we had. After that, very quickly we realized it's a waste of time and we couldn't afford the petrol, so just stay in the office and just stay in the factory and literally just sleep all over the place. We'll be filthy. Um, and that's what we did. Oh, wow, that was painful. And I, so, like, I think from, from the outside, a lot of people are very, very curious about all these like, projects and, you know, how is it being delivered um, to you guys? And you know, like, what does the usual brief sort of look like? Um, maybe you can just like pull up like whatever example you can talk about and sort of share from from like a client end, like when they come to you. Like, what did it? What does it usually look like? It's like, oh, you know, my trolley cars need an upgrade. Can exactly you, that. Is it, is it like that? Or, or even sometimes it's even a, a more elusive, uh, uh, broader question. They'll come and say, you know, hey, hope technique. Um, we've actually got this problem. We need this issue sorted out in our factory. We need to increase our productivity. Um, we got this manpower shortage. and this, this Typical constraints of doing business. And this happens both in Singapore and abroad. Uh, so wherever our clientele will be and say, these are the challenges we have. And if you guys have a good idea, um, okay. propose it. Okay. And, and that's usually yeah, day one meeting one and then it begins and then we will start having our think tanks put together and then we will argue debate we'll google like mad uh, and then we start realizing very quickly that um, it, the, the solution doesn't really quite exist in the world and then we go yeah if we google something we find that there's something off the shelf which is perfectly meets their requirement we will shut down the think tank 
um, we'll take the website and we'll forward it to the potential customer and wish them well. Because there is no point going into that when you charge more than what is a standard product. Um, nobody's happy in the end. The team that um, receives it on the customer side, when they find out there's something they could have bought for less, um, they'll not be happy. The team that on my side that's delivering it will be like, I mean, why are we... Why we... Yeah. I think that sort of becomes like one of the Ten Commandments like you have on the wall. Mm. Like, don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah, exactly that. Yes. I think the team that we have is very innovative. Uh, they're, very, they're very creative people. Um, and they, they like the challenge, they like the thrill. We're all the same. And so if that's the case, then it's a bad project. Nobody enjoys it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, like, I guess it's really hard for you to do that when you first started, you know, when, you know, like, wow, this project could actually bring us so and so much money, where, you know, saying no is actually way harder back then than now. Mm. Um, were there any, like, uh, like, moral situation that you need to sort of, like, you know, come to it? Um, no. They didn't happen. Um, I think we were so deluded that whatever the requirement was, we believe that no matter whether we saw something similar, let's say in the early days we were doing a lot of drones and unmanned robotics for various customers, we would see it and we'd say, yes, it's, it would kind of meet your requirements, but you know, we could actually do this much more. And customers would be like, oh yeah, I mean, I don't want that off-the-shelf stuff. I want what you guys are. And we would promise a lot. And it'll be way past what would be normal and sensible. Right. So it'll be like, okay, well, this product that you want with your problem sort of exists, like here. Yeah. But, you know, like, this other problem I haven't thought of, yeah. uh, and this one there, and this one here, we can build it too, you know? Yeah, exactly. We'll be keen. If you're not, then, you know, well, then, then just, just go with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, okay, mm, very good, very good. <laughs> I see, I see. And, and, and I think that, I think one of the tricky parts when it comes to, like, coming out of this kind of projects and, you know, like, with innovation on the demand is that you don't know how long it's going to take. So if you don't know how long, then how, how are you going to build your client? Yeah. What, what, what are the solutions now that you have? No, it's, it's always been the same thing. To yeah. our client, it's, um, it's always a fixed price contract. Okay. Um, it's our estimation and our execution. Yeah. Don't get it wrong. The client should not have to pay for our mistakes. Same thing when we do a defects liability period, DLP, which is warranty for equipment. We are original equipment manufacturer. Um, we have no issues. I'm not going to tell you which projects, products that it is. That we've had challenges. Long after the warranty period ended, and we looked at it and we said, that is actually a design issue. And we ha have had to recall equipment globally um, to get it right. My point is, that's not the customer's fault. If we're going to charge a dollar to design and develop something and productize it for the customer, and the customer says, good, I'll buy it for a dollar, and in the end, we realize it costs $2 to build. It's our fault. It's not the customer's fault. And you still have to go in front of the customer and smile. Even though, no, even though you know you took on the contract and you're losing money. And I mean, with this kind of contracts, like if the products all don't, don't exist, um, do you sort of also own the, um, 
a patent sort of um, to that product if you were to design it and you can sell. Um, deal to deal, the IP is um, the IP share or the rules on the IP uh, depends on how we deal the customer. But we try and make sure it's very clear that whatever we do, unless we are developing as a product and we don't charge the customer for the development, um, we don't do some. Sometimes we own the IP and the customer doesn't really need the IP or want the IP, and then we do a recurring sale, we try to make sure that the first customer never paid the highest price for it, which theoretically speaking would happen normally. Um, I, I think it would leave a very bad taste in a customer's mouth when they realize that they were the early adopter and they got punished for it. So it's nice to just make sure that the customer feels correct. Mm, mm. But you, you never know about the product, whether you would sell on the second run or, or not, yeah. right? So it's more like an upfront risk that you're you are taking up and oh, a, yes. a, a prediction. I, business is risk. If you want to grow something and create something, you have to take the risk. Okay. Um, so let's say, let's say that deal was sort of like finalized and, and you know, like now you're talking about the engineering part, right? After Googling and then you say, that, okay, there isn't sort of um, this, this thing that's out there and you, you, uh, the client's happy with the money um, and it's like, okay, let, let's do it. So what happens next? So let, let me like, maybe I'll take a, a, a example. Maybe like Steve Shop came up on his deathbed and say, oh, I have this like idea of Apple Watch. Like maybe which is not kind of your specialty, but let's just take that for example. And then I want to do it. And then what would be sort of the next few steps um, to... Once we got a contract goal, uh, prior to the contract goal, we've already architected the entire um, gen chart, the progress chart, uh, the engineering resources that are required. Um, and there's always a plan before we sign. And then once it goes in, um, we even tell the customers when is the trigger point that we actually start the contract. The, the, the engineering um, and then once it's a goal um, the project manager would, would take over the system engineer the lead engineer would take over and and that's it and then you get weekly tracking and everything is visible there's a dashboard for every part of the engineering the cost the resources the manpower everything and and then it's a the race to the finish line mm-hmm. And, and the finish line, uh, that you mean customer gets the product on hand and it's working. And they, and they sign it off. And they say, thank you very much, here's the money. Okay. With a smile. Yeah, well, ho- hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and do you, have, do you have times where like, you just, you just took, a, like, took a bike that's too big, you know? <laughs> oh, very often. <laughs> I mean, in that case, what, 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 what usually, you know, like, what happened, like, you know? Then you break. We all break our backs. My team breaks their backs. Um, we go in a bit of a crisis mode. Um, and then it's pure grit. Pure grit. Um, and then you just keep fighting and fighting. and Not with each other, but the, the rush to, to make something happen just go, continues. You can't walk out. Wow. Well, well I guess then... then maybe the next question would be sort of the time, right? Like, I mean, what, there's only that much time in the day and there's only that 24 hours or 22 hours that you can work and you need maybe like say two hours. Um, how, if one, uh, let's say you are training a project manager and how would you like teach him about how do you estimate time in a certain, you know, project? Um, we, 
when someone is new, um, we would have a lot of seniors and mentors that that project manager would, would make an estimation of cost, time, materials, whatever, resources. And then a more senior uh, project manager would actually go through and, and say, would, would look through it and, and validate. Uh, and we got quite a complicated thing. So project managers have one requirement and they have to get a sign-off from engineering. Uh, they got to get a sign-off from production in the sense that, and that's all before the sales guy or the business development guy can actually present it to the customer because, you know, we're all conflicted. <laughs> business development would love to sell the most performance at the lowest price because they definitely get the deal. Don't blame them. That's 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 the reality of life. Yeah. And their KPI is getting deal. Yeah. And project managers would want to have the most amount of time and the best resources and engineering will want this and, and production will want that and yeah, so we all sit around and we all challenge each other until we get a mutual sign-off and everyone's agreeable to it. And then uh, we go ahead. How much time do you allocate for this process then, you know, like to from the problem to presenting client a proposal? Because, you know, you could just as well like argue the entire day, right? It can be days. It can be weeks. It can even be months depending on the scale. There are some um, very large commitments that we undertake, um, especially when it's strategic, um, to say that's, that's going to form our next product line. Um, and those arguments, those discussions um, are very long. And we really bring everybody in. Because you want the whole team to be on board, right? You know, on the decision. More than just being on board, um, as the company has gotten larger and we've got more, you know, we, we, we specialize in different arms businesses and all that we are in. Um, I, I think it's foolish if um, we, the people who are not doing it daily and facing the customers and facing the technology and the product every day are making decisions on what those people should be doing in the future, assuming that we know better. I mean, I would never trust that judgment. I mean, we've got... Um, industrial robots under Sesto Robotics in uh, over a dozen factories. I have visited one of the deployments. Okay. One. And my team's teammates are in the various factories around the world deploying. And so if we say that's going to be the next direction and future we're going to do, I mean, seriously, what have I seen? Um, I'll, I'll ask my teammates exactly what they want and what they need and what they see and what they feel. And I think that it's that is a must. It's not an option. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, you talk about huge projects, right? Um, I think after the success with the Red Rhino, um, which I read on the internet and need to confirm with you, the company almost ran into bankruptcy. Uh, again. Yeah. <laughs> again. So, like, look, what do most people not know about run, like, running an engineering company? Wow. Um, because you, you obviously I thought you know like after 40,000 uh, being in that 40,000 like you would try not to like make the same mistake <laughs> I have never said that we are very smart people <laughs> okay I have never said we are very wise either um, I think the challenges in engineering um, of making a product or a service it's changing very rapidly um, the world is very interconnected now Maybe the internet or, or cheap travel, flight or freight around the world. Uh, knowledge exchange, IP, um, 
it's more prevalent now than ever before and it's the trend is continuing that way. So you're starting to see super silos appear. So you know, if you want certain kinds of products, you'd buy it from this part in China. I think I, I could get my facts wrong, but I heard there's a village that makes 90% of all umbrellas in the world. In just one village, that's what it is. So the super siloing starts to happen. If you want to buy um, any piece of uh, equipment, maybe a chair or something like that, um, there is so much options in the world right now. Um, the ability to access those options and find the right solution as a buyer is now easier than it's ever been before. Um, personally, I love Alibaba and AliExpress. Oh, yeah. And it scares you. You know, China is such a large economy, such a large manufacturing hub of the world. And to now have the ability to talk to them and deal with the smallest company in China directly for your internet connection costs. Wow. If you now rewind the clock eight years ago, that didn't exist. So I think for an engineering company, the challenges is to stay... The, the, the definition of why you're competitive, um, if you can't answer that question, I think you'll be in big, big trouble. And I guess maybe like, to have more for people to have more context, let's maybe explain what an engineering company is. Um, I would say in a myopic way for us, um, we are hardware producers. We do produce software. I mean, we do the full suite in-house, but we are solution providers. Even like a fire truck is a solution to the customer. We don't sell them the base and say, please go and add your own fire pump. You know, we'll do all of that. An engineering company, product manufacturer, I would say, needs to just provide a full solution, a very competitive solution um, to a customer. Um, and uh, I think moving, I think I, I, I saw your speech in AC, uh, JC or TEDx uh, talk, you talk about some failures um, yeah. with the um, skate scooter. <laughs> oh yeah. And the, um, um, I think the, one of the first version of uh, Sisto Robotics uh, about the... Um, yeah, 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 correct. Yeah. <laughs> So some products didn't see the light of the day, you know, like some of those, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but I think, well, what do you learn from those experiences um, specifically? And by knowing that, you know, like electric skate scooter actually is like the thing now, right? Yeah. Everybody's like riding on it. Yeah. So like what, what, yeah. <sighs> wow. You are here to open up all the painful stories, huh? Um, skate scooter. You know, they say uh, like interviewer is kind of like a psychologist, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, my teammate uh, Manny had designed and developed a fantastic solution. It was hubless, it was beautiful, it was remarkably light. The issue, we, we saw this skate scooter phenomenon coming. We did. Um, we had, you'll be surprised, it was supposed to be a ride share model. It's supposed to have GPS tagging. It, it was supposed to have. Um, Interconnectivity such that you rent it. There were charging stations that it was supposed to hang from. And this is 2010 that we were working on it already. Exactly what you're seeing now, ride sharing. Um, that was the concept. Um, now, where did we fail? To meet the expected production price that the customer was willing to pay, 
we needed to make five, ten thousand units. How much was that in your mind? We never thought about it until we actually started looking for manufacturers, contract manufacturers to do the casting of the aluminium plate, of, of the, the motor drive mechanism, of the wheels and everything. And then we got the unpleasant shock that it was into the millions. Which, which then how much you need to sell for one of the... I mean, it would have been profitable. Okay. It would have re- reached the price that the typical consumer would be like, oh, that's cool. Let, let's do I'll it. Buy it. Yeah. I'll buy it. But um, to get to that point, you needed a few bucks, which we didn't have. And after that, um, we canned the program. Very, very painfully, we, we, we axed the program. And it was only two years into the program, and we were ready for the production run. So two years, you're talking about how, how many manpower behind oh, a lot. two years? A lot. And um, a lot. how much money? A lot. A lot. A lot. Into the millions? I would say we crossed the million wow. easily. Um, I was a fool. Mm-hmm. I take full responsibility for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, the, and I guess, like, I, I think from what you say, is like the reason is because the failure was because you didn't uh, foresee the amount of money you need to kickstart. I didn't know, I didn't know. Yeah. It's, it's the scariest thing to, to ever have, especially. As four founders, we are engineers and we're proud to be engineers. We never wanted to be businessmen. We never wanted to run a company. We never wanted to be a boss. Never. Um, by default, of the four founders, uh, Kyung Lun is really good at executing. Uh, Jeff is very good in engineering. Michael is very good at getting things done. I am good at absolutely nothing. So by default, they made me CEO. That's, that's how we interpret things. Uh, the running joke in the office is that I'm not CEO, I'm actually COE. So every 10 years, I'm up for renewal, whether they're going to scrap me or they're going to do a little bit of extension, that kind of stuff. So the point is, um, a lot of some of these commercial decisions came back to me and I was never groomed or trained to be a CEO, and through all these failures, like the um, cake scooter project, then I started realizing mm, the job scope has changed, eh? and the mistake now that I make. No one's interested to say to hear me say I'm sorry. That I, I take responsibility for it. It means nothing. It means I've wasted two years of my teammates' lives. I've given them a dream. We have plowed in money, hard-earned money that could have been spent on salaries and bonuses and we've got nothing to show for it. That's life. Never repeat it again. Ever again. And Well, I guess, like, would you then say to that younger self that, you know, because like, I think from the gist of your TED talk was that you observe other, you try to observe other people's failure and <laughs> not try to spend two years of time doing that, right? I mean, would you do more of that, um, um, you know, like, if you would have known better or, you know? I think, because I think, so, so here's my sort hmm. of like point of view is that a lot of people are so, they love to look at successes, and, and I think one thing people don't look at enough is failures. Mm. Um, yes. And, and there's so much to be learned 
actually um, uh, more fulfilling, which is why like I made this thing two hours because like more than the successes, which is sure that's what attract people to come here, but I want that to be hidden in that two hours, and the, the hence the Trojan horse that the failures is actually part of it, and hopefully you know like you don't be like an idiot and go start an engineering company without listening to this um, first. Um, should listen to a lot more stories from more successful people. Trust me. <laughs> no, for sure. Don't listen to these borderline stories, man. <laughs> and, that's why that's why I'm referring to my side, yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And 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 you know, like how would how do you how would you you know if you let's say if you could go back and tell that younger Peter about like let's go you should like you know study about failures. How would you like pitch it to him? Again, I'm so insecure, I wouldn't pitch anything. Because I think one part about failure is that the only way you really learn the most is to be in the hot seat or be part of the team that had to grip their teeth and feel the pain. You can, you can read whichever books on, on strategy, on dealing with failure, on motivating teammates out of failure. Um, I can tell you, um, no one said it's going to be easy no one ever told me it's going to be this bloody hard. And when it comes to failure, I, I can tell you that when you really reach that point um, where you see everything crumbling around you, nothing prepares you for that moment. Nothing. And you really face up to that reality. Um, it's choking. It's, um, it's suffocating. Um, it's frightening. Um, and in many ways, you just have to go through it. I... It's not a defense to say that that's failure. Um, but I have since seeked a lot of good mentors. been very blessed and fortunate they make time to let me ask them questions and for me to learn from them. And no matter how vivid a story and how clear they are, some of them have even taken the time to show me emails, photographs of that process when it failed. And some of them have run some of the larger companies in the world. And it's so public. And they can tell me that, I can read all about it. And in the end, you know, I can always tell that there is that gap that I will never understand and go through. In many ways, if you look at the best leaders in the world, um, you know, they hire people who are very experienced. And what is experience? Experience is number of failures. <laughs> For whatever number of successes you have, the more successes you have, I guarantee you the more failures you have in the back. And a lot of mentors that I reach out to, they've got no shortage of failures that they can tell me about. And that's life. So I wouldn't go back 20 years ago and tell a young Peter, um, oh, da 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 da. I'm, I'll probably just stand in the corner and have a good smile and go, wow, <laughs> the hair still didn't grow. <laughs> yeah. And let's, I mean, like, right now, if you were to take on um, some of these projects uh, to innovate on certain technologies, right? Like, um, what would you, like, you know, what is the, how would your decision-making process be different from, from then? You know, are there any principles that you use now um, that you have, you know, since uh, from your failures have, like, maybe I like, develop one or two, and I better, like, this thing needs to be a, a pass or fail. If it fails, I cannot do this. In the past, is it cool? 
was it technically challenging? Was it fun? You hit all three, steady, let's go, do it. My two, don't you ask more questions. Now, we were, kind of, we were still asked the same questions. We haven't lost our DNA, but that's chapter one. Nah. Then now we've got chapter two of the questions, which would be, does it make money? For how long can it make money? For all the effort and the time that we're going to put in and the money we're going to put in, is this the best return on investment? So there's the commercial side now, but before we even hit the commercial side, the good news is that we have not lost the heart and so. Um, and that's still the starting point. Yes. Um, I think it's very easy to look at the second half of the equation and ask about money, 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 money. Um, then if that's the, the, the decision formula of our competitive advantage, then I have to ask, why are we then better suited to achieve success than any other company that might have much more money, much more experience, much more market, uh, sales channels, market reach, you know, other competitive and comparable advantages that they have. And what was our competitive comparable advantage at the beginning? It's about doing the hard things in a very, very crazy engineered way. And so we, we can't lose that. But so, yeah, unfortunately, we've got chapter two now. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the time because I think there's a lot of people who don't, I mean, like, you know, don't talk about it. How long can we earn for? Mm. Like, can, do you want to expand on that? Because I think that's something that... Nothing lasts forever. Enjoy it while it lasts. The world's market cycle is getting shorter and shorter. Um, you've got this beautiful vintage uh, telephone here. I'm sure we saw this design for at least 10 years in the market in the past. Now our, our mobile phones uh, have got a, a life cycle of, product life cycle of maybe a year. You can see everything changes very quickly. Um, how long it lasts, it depends on, on your, your thesis of how much, how long you want it to be. Um, I feel the most important thing is that it has to earn you money long, longer or long enough for you to actually earn the money. So you might have a new product, a new technology, something really cool, but it takes you a number of years to get to market. And even when you're in market, to actually close the deals and, and deliver it. So your, that life cycle of that product has to be long enough to cover all that. So, so are you talking about like, like at least twice the amount of money you put in? Or? We have our secret formula. It's okay. a lot more aggressive than that. <laughs> okay. We have uh, our right. secret formula. Which like do a really quick breakdown because uh, of what, what we're saying um, to, to anybody who's listening. So basically, like, if you were to take this phone, for example, like, um, like say this phone doesn't exist uh, uh, right now. So basically, what you'll do is that you first think about, like, is this phone challenging and fun to design? So that's, like, first test. Yeah. And the second test, like, well, I don't know how much money can we make on it. Uh, but more than just how much money per phone you talk about, how many people will actually buy it and how long would they actually buy it for yes. until the next phone comes out. Yes. And that needs to be, I guess, more than the, the upfront cost that you, you no, put in sure. and m in multiples, basically. For sure. For yeah. Sure. I, and, you know, I mean, and, and I think that's, like, a super important lesson for, like, I think creators to, to learn about um, that, you know, like, look, I mean, like, sure, if you want to design that, you can at your own time. But then if you want to, like, you know, go in, like, million dollars of debt with the company, then, you know, that's something that we need to rethink again. Because I think school really just teaches you, oh, this designer knows crazy shit, it's all going to be good. But then actually, like, people don't see the time cost uh, put into designing something like that. 
Um, are there any, I mean, you spoke about mentors. Um, are there any one that particularly stood, stood up for you? And uh, what do you learn from them? And you don't need to just say one, you can give credit to the rest as well. I, I think I'll be a bit uh, shy on giving names. Okay, um, fair enough. But I think to all the mentors that have uh, taught me uh, and continue to teach me, um, they surprise and amaze me in different ways. That's all I can say. Um, I'm curious to know, um, with, you know, with the success of Vibrate Rhino, and then how did you manage to get the deal with um, Airbus? Because um, SCDF, local, local, like support local, right? But then what about the big boys? You have the French companies. Like, why, why choose you? you know, like, why not choose another French engineering company? So the deal started when Airbus Defence and Space Group came to Singapore for some other meeting and they, they were hosted by the Economic Development Board, EDB. Mm. So EDB was excited to, to try and find opportunities for companies in Singapore. And so they introduced us and they were strong in lobbying. When now comes the tough question, why, why did we get it? Yes, it was a global tender. Um, they were around the world asking for people to do the demonstrator aircraft. And there was a lot of work to be done. It was mechanical, electrical, software, everything. Okay. Now, how did we get it? I would like to think, in the end, we were a small company that acted big. So to get to um, the, um, for Airbus Group to actually be convinced, um, you need to pass all their um, quality assurance mechanisms, their engineering studies and everything. And they are playing at that level, at um, best-in-class, best-in-world level. Uh, they call it ADS-37, space-bound equipment. You know, these are the guys that did the Ariane 5 rocket program and stuff. You're dealing with that kind of engineers and project managers. So they wanted a company that could talk that lingo, reach that standard, do that quality documentation, engineering, whatever it had to be at that level that they're used to. But at the same time, um, because it's such an unusual contract, they needed a small company that was nimble and fast, that you would take a conference call at 3 o'clock in the morning, and by the next day, you'd have a better solution. Um, you would draw the line and say that, you know, based on the letters of agreement, um, a conference call needs to be set seven working days in advance. There's no such thing. There was, you could call us on our handphone at 2 o'clock in the morning, we'd still be in the office. We needed a procurement method that could meet that requirement. We brought in very special materials to build the aircraft. Um, we had to get all the export-import permits and all that kind of stuff. And we didn't have time. They wanted a company that could move really fast. Um, we signed the contract in February 2012. We delivered the whole contract in May 2014. It was two years, three months. Um, and it was one hell of a ride. So I think that was the A to Z. Very few companies. Did they know that? I mean, do you know that they wanted that? And they, you know, like I, I, I or did you just like, don't you just sort of like step in the dark and say, like, we can do it through, no, no problem. I, I think I think they came over. Um, Christoph Chauvinek and Fabrice Rufuno came over to Singapore prior to signing it, maybe six, seven times, and there was no shortage of interaction. And each session. Um, would be so technical and they would challenge so much that in the end it became clear whether or not we could do it. So, and we kind of knew what we were getting ourselves into. Yeah. Kind of. Kind of. Did you know it was two years? Like, you know, it was 27 I months. I thought it was going to be shorter. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, it seems very long, two years. Oh, it's one of the longer projects we've ever had. Okay. <laughs> um, so, like, I think let's 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 move down um, to to that famous wall that you guys have um, in in an office um, with that Ten Commandments. Um, that's um, um, I would I would say it's very a bit different from a lot of other companies. They have a lot of Ten Commandments or missions or values that um, maybe sometimes some people try to uphold, some people not. Like, um, do you want? Just give me a little bit of story of the Ten Commandments and how they sort of came to be. Okay, its inspiration actually comes from Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. They have 13 rules of engagement. So, it's the favourite book in the office. Um, it's a must-read. And still, Skunk Works are the guys that did the SR-71 Blackbird, F-117. Oh, wow. The, the, woo, wow. Okay, they're the wow guys. Um, so, there's a, a book uh, written. Uh, and that 13 rules. We looked at it, we were so inspired by the book, and we said, well, we can understand. And their rules are not very different. Um, they, are, they are not high-level rules. I think when you read our 10 rules, they are very pragmatic, very simple rules. You read it, you go, oh. Yeah. And that was theirs. But we said, let's read, write our own of the challenges that we think we will face and what matters to us. And so we, we wrote the 10 rules. Now, what's so funny about the 10 rules? Um, there are, they guide the entire team, but they are read in two different ways. Okay. So you can read um, the rules, uh, and I can't say that as a company we've, we've succeeded in upholding them always, but um, rule number one, it's a passion and a career, not a job. That's how you read it as a teammate that walks through the thing. Oh, I must be passionate. This is my career. Now we read the other way around. Not, not literally, but as a company, we're saying that we're going to give you a career or do our best to give you a career that you can be passionate about. And we're not going to keep it as a concept that this is only your job. So it works in two ways, right? The relationship of all the 10 rules. Yeah, it's, also, it's the boss job as well as... It's a company's job. It's not yeah. a boss. It's, it's a, so rule number five. Um, our best ideas and intentions go into production. If anything goes wrong, no blame goes to anyone. We will all fix it. Sounds very nice, right? Yeah. How did you, what, what are the actual practical sort of like, you know, like how do you relate to actual ground, you know? So we've had big problems before. We had systems that didn't function the way they were supposed to very early on after delivery. Okay. Um, some of them are near catastrophic, like, they are in a far-off country, um, and the cost of fixing it is prohibitively high. Um, the loss of reputation, the anger from the customer is intense. In the end, we get it sorted out. We have to, right? That's our job. So we do it. But the fault is very, very specific. Can be things overheating, things breaking, wrong specification, things that if we go into our engineering uh, review, we knew exactly who designed it, who built it, who decided it. But now rule number five comes in. You see, the designer, who, the engineer who designed it, or the tech or the operator who, who fixed it, well, it all went through a, a, a process. As much as we try to look cool, we're actually very process-driven. 
the QA actually. The, the QA, even the engineering uh, design reviews, with the amount of design reviews we do, the amount of design sign-offs we have, the number of people who sit in that forum is, it's non-trivial. Um, if a project is in a tough shape, we can do a design review every 24 hours. And we can assemble up teams to do it. So, so the, the engineer who designed it, designed it, proposed it, the more senior engineer approved it, the system engineer accepted it, the chief engineer of the company said, yeah, this person, that person, it goes up the hierarchy. So that thing has had a problem. Now, if I to isolate and say that this engineer is the cause of that failure, then why did you have such an approval hierarchy for? Because now, you, now when things go wrong, you're going to push the blame to that teammate. If that's the philosophy, then why is that junior teammate paid less than a guy right on top? It doesn't make sense, right? So you're saying that when it's time to get paid and time to get the, the, the positive parts of a job, that guy up there gets it. It could be a chief engineer, it could be a system engineer, project manager, whatever. And the most junior guy, when there's a fault, we will say, <laughs> actually when you signed it off, you know, it's just a formality that you signed it off, right? The person who actually did that work, that's the guy we should hang on Friday morning. So, so it doesn't that, make sense. Like so, okay. So what happened after this project? You know, like did anyone got fired? No, no one got docked on their bonus. Okay, we all laughed about it. We remember it very well. It that lesson gets put into a new process chain of engineering clearance, yeah. of product clearance, of process clearance. There's a new paragraph there or a new subsection that needs to be validated. It. Uh, it meant that we introduced new tests, uh, new qualifications, new improvements and everything. And well, the, the teammates who, who made the, these boo-boos are still with us. And I can tell you that they boo-boo a lot less now. Because <laughs> it's one, one more thing under their wing. Yeah. And, and no, I mean, I want to comment on you on this because a lot of people give lip service to feel fast, feel forward. So that's sort of mm. the concept, right? You know, um, but like, I think when it comes down to execution, not a lot of people could say that, you know, I really don't blame no so and so and so um, it's all our fault um, versus like it's very pertinent in your company and hence it's sort of like created that trust around their community and be able to be fast and nimble on their experiment and their design and not have this culture of fear of like who's like finger pointing mm. it's not easy culture to hold on to but uh, you want to know why I think it's fundamentally um, we had the privilege to actually work the different rungs up so I've been a mechanic, I've been a technician, I've been a welder, I've done composites, so have the other three co-founders. Yeah. Um, now as we've got more and more business units, leads, we have all served time on shop floor, we've all done the engineering role, we've all done the project manager role, and we have all seen best intents and intentions and ideas being put into production, and it really blindsided us, and we never saw that coming. And you realize that if you can't do a better job and if things were not possibly easier, then let's just make a culture that supports it. Um, so I think one of the things that I think maybe some companies would be interested about is you have this um, students who just got out of school, which you know are graded by, you do this thing wrong, you got deducted marks, you do this right, good. You, you have these great, fantastic ideas, and then they get shoot down, you know, so fast. Mm. <laughs> you know, how, like, how do you sort of, or maybe you don't, uh, maybe it's a hard process. Like, 
really sort of mold the mentality, because that's the hardest, right, mm. of this feel faster for a concept? Whoa. Um, you're, you're right. We, we don't actually try and remold it. Um, we take a lot of interns in a year. We've got 130, 140 teammates in the office, and we would go through around 100 to 200 interns a year. So you can almost see it's a one-to-one -one matching or sometimes more. Yeah. Um, and we really have to, to find teammates that follow this. Mm. Um, we have seen uh, interns come in who were very, very impressive. They were amazing engineers. Um, they, would, they, would, they are going to be legends in their own right. And we couldn't take them in because they were so scared and they were paralyzed by making a simple decision in engineering because they could not let that simple decision be wrong. It's, it's unheard of for them yeah. to do something that's wrong. So because of that, um, you can't really change that mindset. Um, and so we can't accept it. It's, I mean, it's in our nature, uh, the way that we are architected, if we have differing camps, a very conservative camp and a very gung-ho G.I. Joe camp, it, it won't work. A, a business has one culture. It's got one modus of operandi. And, and we don't change that. So, yeah. So basically, by saying that you, 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 do, you do it by the higher yeah. culture. Yeah, because I, I maybe like, because, you know, I make the mistakes too that, you know, like, oh, maybe I can train this person to be... And then I think maybe I eat the... Yeah. We are just one employer in, in a pool of countless employers. Mm, mm, mm. So we, we don't appeal to everybody. Um, um, if you were to be able to give a lecture, and you do, uh, to a year three engineering students, like any topic you want, what would you teach them in the three hours lectures? Dream your life when you're 60 years old. Be very clear. Dream big, dream clear, dream real. Uh, define how you wake up in the morning, what, you, what your family looks like, um, your material world, what it's going to look like, your cars, your, your, your holidays, your home, what your career is going to look like, what your job scope is going to be like. And dream as big as you want to dream. Um, but after that, dream it very clear. So you know what's your definition of happiness? And then you start working backwards. And you make sure that every day you are working towards that dream of your life. <clears throat> what you define your happiness to be. Um, it is a message I've shared many, many times with a lot of young students. Um, and I really believe that uh, you'll be surprised and you ask, well, well, I'll tell an engineering student. Because I've told some, some, some students have come up to me and said, you know, Peter, um, <clears throat> I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to be a risk car engineer like what you did. I'm like, okay, you do this, da, 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 da. and they're like, yeah, because that's their definition. That's the hard part. Some of the other ones that tell me, you know, you know, Peter, actually, I really don't like engineering at all. You know, I, I can't understand it. It's boring. I, I'm like, dude, start going, go and get your modules in accountancy and econs and stuff. Go and get your CFA and, you know, go and start talking to the biz app guys because, and the guys that are working in the banks and stuff, right? Because you seem to like the financial sector. Um, had some friends, they told me, you know, engineering is really cool, Peter, but I wish I'll be a, I was a lawyer. I'm like, why don't you just get a double degree and just go and read law now? 
and I mean, like, I, I would, I would also, I mean, I hundred percent agree and love what you um uh, advocate. And I think one thing I'll add on to that is just that, like, you might not know. I think, and 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 I think if you, if you are at that stage, because right now, in in society, we now we can be whoever you want to be, right? Yeah. And now we have the paradox of choice. So it's like, go start eliminating. Try it and eliminate and try and eliminate, right? And and you know, I'm a big advocate of like not even like doing school, like until you know what the hell you want to yeah, do. For sure. But um, once you decide what you want, you go and do it. I mean, sitting down and not doing anything and hoping that. Everything is going to line up. Um, well, that's delusion. Nah. So I'm going to uh, shift gear and move into the more like big general topic. Um, sort of with this whole disruptive future, robotics, AI, you know. What do you think people are paying too much attention to and on the contrary, too little attention to? Well, I've been told that you ask them difficult questions and... <laughs> Okay, they were all right. Um, I think we are paying too much attention to how we're going to deal with its adoption. Um, thinking that we've never seen robots before or changes in technology or um, market access or anything, any definition of any part of commerce in the world. It's always been there. We're in the fourth industrial revolution. Um, there were three before that and there'll be another one after this and a lot more after that. So... Um, yeah, um, all these worries, yes, it's, uh, we've never seen this before. I, I, I look at AI, robotics, um, big data. Um, yes, it's going to be very disruptive. It's going to change everything. But um, when the motor car appeared, the horses and the horse carriages disappeared within 11 years or some, somewhere there, a decade or so. Um, when in, um, manufacturing production lines came, the boutique cottage industries disappeared. The, if you go back in time, was it disruptive? Yes, it was. So I feel that the, we're spending too much time worrying about that, um, of adoption, of, of, of managing it, of not being worried. I think the bigger question is, you know that we're all going to adopt it. It's going to happen in 5-10 years' time. We'll be used to it. We're talking to our, our phones already and we're letting AI do so much for us, even on the, the chatbots and stuff like that. You know, whatever. I think what we're not paying enough attention to is that what is our value in the future? Adopting it is not a competitive advantage. You are with the masses. You have got nothing um, that's going to separate you against any of your competitors in the future. So I, I think what we should spend more time worrying about is that in this value chain, in this future, where are we going to be? And I believe we need to own some of it. Like, not use it, own it. Be the creator of that technology, of that product, of that service that utilizes it. Somewhere in there, but just saying, I am going to adopt big data. It's like saying that um, I'm going to buy a laptop many years ago or a personal computer. It's, it's exactly the same. So what if you got a personal computer in the 1990s? Wow, big deal. I'm going to use Word processor. Whoa, I'm going to use Excel. So? You know what I'm saying, right? But if you look at it, well, Microsoft created Word, created Excel, Office, and we know you know where it stands. So I think we should worry about that. 
So on on what about let's bring it down to day to day like like you know just you and I or you know just a student like how should they be positioning themselves then? Because you're talking more of like companies and you know big organization level where they should actually be like creating and um, you know owning some of this um, uh, paid AI whatever that is right. What about like on a low level? I think on the uh, on the individual level. You just need to start. Um, first and foremost, you can't rubbish it and say, I'm not interested. That is suicide. Sure, Dion. Especially a young student now, eh? and you don't want to jump on board this bandwagon. Sure, Dion. Okay? Um, other than that, you've got to start playing with it. You've got to read about it. If there, you know, there's a lot of it actually on the internet that lets you experience it. Uh, I think people should just spend the time working on it. Um, for example, uh, IBM uh, Bluemix, Watson Powered. Um, it's available, you can actually, as an individual, monkey around with, with that. Um, and I think people should do that. They should figure out exactly, you know, hey, this is what the future is going to look like, um, and, and, do, and work with it. Mm. So you're talking more on a, like an engineering um, person uh, point of view, and I guess even for layman consumer, you could actually also sort of just... Um, start playing with it and start learning it and see and, and I guess sort of like be uh, adapted to its lingual yeah. and how you can use it. Yes. Um, yeah. Mm. I think the company itself has um, grown so much um, from the, the days where you were just making tools for race cars, right? And, and I'm curious to know, like, what does, what does the company mean to you, like, today, you know, in this current season of life? Wow. Um, it's where I get my, it's, it's where, where I serve my job. So I'm employed by the company. Sure. Um, what the company is now is, I think in the end, it, it's becoming an innovate, it's becoming a dream factory. Um, we'll be moving more and more towards um, having Hope Technique as a central unit and spinning out focused companies from ourselves. Like Sesto Robotics. Like Robotics. Um, soon the vehicle site will probably um, spin out. Um, watch this space. In 2018, we'll begin the exoskeleton spin out. You know, I, we, when I said the silo concept just now, super silos, um, our reaction to it is that so will we. So we'll super silo and the teammates who are really passionate and good and knowledgeable and capable in one area, we already have that system going on, we'll focus them. But in the next iteration to this, we'll focus them even further and let them go hawk heaven crazy into, into that area of the business. Yeah. And what, what, about, what about what it means to you? Would you still want to steer the mothership? Or you want to be in more of this super silo or, you know? <laughs> uh, for me personally, I would stay at Mothership simply because um, all the spin-offs are, are things that are, the four founders really love. I mean, we are really passionate about it. So yeah. um, all the different business lines that we are involved in, still, it still reaches out to us. It, it's still something that we, we, we love. So, you know, like children, you can't really take your favourites. Um, so we will kind of balance our, ourselves off between all the opportunities, yeah. and and that's what we do. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean that's really interesting to to see. You know, on the outside, and a lot of people. Um, I mean, maybe even just on outlook of the website, it's just like, oh, okay, well, just like hope technique is just like, oh, they're there, right? You know, but like, I think people don't see. Um, um, if you dig down, actually, there's so much going on uh, under the the surface. I think what people don't realize is that there's this stupid bota head um, <laughs> that keeps appearing. Um, but the reality is that the magic of the company is not even in the four founders. Um, it is actually all the teammates that we have. Um, that interaction with the actual teams, um, they are mind-boggling. They, they, they blow your mind away. And they are really the asset and the advantage of the company. Yeah. I think maybe we can put some context into this where, you know, as every engineer's dream, and we spoke about it briefly before, is that, you know, you still want to be like the one tinkering mm. on, the, on the product. And now that you can't, because mm. just because your time is more valuable spending on strategizing. But I'm not that you good. Know, well, maybe you're not that good, or, you know, maybe you have more mouth to feed and people are depending mm. on your uh, sort of overview uh, steering of the boat. Mm. Like, how do you get over that? lesson you know how do you learn that you know and and i guess how do you process that internally you just face a reality of of growing up yeah Um, just hits you in the face (laughs) it just hits you in the face uh a lot of mentors that uh i have Mm. uh they tend to all be engineers that now run mega corporations or ran mega corporations and they had that same transitional challenge and in the end you realize that um the role requires, um, for myself now, I go around, I spend very little time in the office. I go around having a lot of meetings, talking to a lot of people, seeing a lot of things. And that gives me a cert- privilege of a certain overview. But because there's still a technical um, core, I would like to think, um, that gives me a unique position to actually guide my teammates to say that's the direction. And when I ask myself, but I don't want to do it, um, at the end of the day, the company is a creature on its own. It's a life of its own. Uh, I am hired by the company to get a job done. Um, until we can find a better person to do that job, uh, which I hope will happen one day soon. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> come on, seriously. I really miss engineering on the shop floor, man. Um, but till the day some, a better uh, person is able to do that job, it's a job I need to do. There are hundreds of teammates uh, that call this work. Yeah. And I guess that's also like maybe sort of the sacrifice that like one needs to, 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 to do for you know, this huge monster that... You Everybody know, sacrifices a lot. Yeah, for sure. Everybody. For sure. Agree. It's just different sort of forms and yeah. shapes of sacrifice. All right. So on that note, we shall move on to our quick round of questions. Uh, uh, what was like, I mean like it, it, the question is short but it doesn't need to be you know answer quick okay um, what is the book or books you have given most as a gift um, I don't really give books to people um, but I, I get a lot of friends um, to download Overdrive and go to National Library Board and sign up for membership and then they can get free ebooks and audiobooks which I think now I've got a clan of 50 over friends that are on it. So, so maybe, maybe that's, I mean, I'm going to like change the question a little bit where what books have like shaped you or your way of looking at the world? Wow. Um, 
Or books, yeah, does it need to be one? All kinds of books. Um, I, I enjoy a lot of autobiographies. Okay. Um, like the late, one of the more recent ones that I read was Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the story of Nike. Okay. And then you realize, when you look at Nike, you don't realize how difficult it, its growth has been. Um, everything on um, the books on Apple, um, the books on Lockheed Martin, Skunk Works, um, all these together with very much more structured books, um, financial intelligence, um, strategy, uh, um, yeah. I, for, those I, of, for those people who are just listening, like like Peter say it with like, it's like oh, I wish I don't need to read this. <laughs> I, I mean, they're not the kind of stuff that when you jump in the kind of audiobook starts playing, you're like, oh yeah, I, I, I can't wait to hear how this story ends. CPA. Or, hey, oh wow. Wow, <laughs> this ratio versus that ratio versus That's this. Like and you're that. like, oh, yippee, yeah. So, no. But it's a job. So I, I probably go through a book uh, every two weeks. And, and how much time do you put out um, to digest this information? Or do you have a particular... No, every, I'm, so I, I love audiobooks. So every time I jump in the car, it starts playing. Um, do you have a favorite documentary or movies? No. Okay. For movies, I mean, I really like... Um, I think it's Batman Returns or Begins. The, the second one with Heath Ledger as the Joker. Okay. okay. Yeah, I don't know why, but that's random stuff. Chris, Chris, Chris Nolan, good director. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> um, what have you purchased recently under $100 that has most impacted your life? 100 bucks. Um, and below, yeah. Well, I mean, no, roughly, no, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, my personal purchases uh, usually don't go up that high. Uh, so I, I bought a, a, a what we call a Tox uh, socket set. It's, it's a tool, okay, which is common for a lot of people. But for some reason, I always told myself I could get away the Allen key version. I know it's very technical. And I've seen all my teammates in the office get issued with it. And because I don't get issued a toolbox anymore, I got jealous. And in the end, I decided to go online and I bought it and oh my goodness when I'm fixing my old cars and stuff like that it's made my life so much easier how, how do I spell it? T-O-X? T-O-R-X it's T-O-R-X. a certain shape just like a hex head or an Allen key head okay. it's like a star but with different sizes? yeah different sizes okay. and for some reason some parts of some cars like to use it and before that when I didn't have it I'll kind of dree rig and bugger it up so yeah I, I paid uh, 1998 US dollars and that has changed my life fantastic I'm so happy now what is the worst advice you see or hear being dispensed in your world? You can't do it. That's the worst advice I've ever heard anyone say. You cannot do it. Don't try. Nobody should actually offer that to someone else. When you think of the word successful, who came into your mind and why? Um, he's passed away, unfortunately. Um, he had stage 4 cancer. The gentleman's name is Ken Soon. Um, very, as a businessman, extremely successful. As a person, unforgettable. He came to uh, visit Hope Technique and he wanted us to open a file for us to do development for him in something. Um, after we served him water, he took his cup and he went to the pantry and he washed it and 
That's not normal for a business meeting. Um, when we found out, and he was so humble, decent, everything. When you find out how much he has achieved in his life and how successful he is, it, it blows you away. Um, he, it's his humility to everything that really stood out. Um, and that was something, you know, um, he stayed in a humongously beautiful house. He had three generations of his family staying. They all could get along together. Um, he led a simple life. Um, he had no shortage of money, like seriously no shortage. And at his funeral, you'd see ministers pay their respects. And at the same time, you'd see um, um, persons, guests, um, hugging on to the coffin and crying. And, you know, um, they came from the gangs. They served their time. And he created businesses that hired such, I mean, hired ex-offenders. And, yeah. How do I, um, if I were to find his name on Google? You can't find it. I can't find it. I mean, it's one of those guys that owns... So behind the scenes? Probably has stakes in... I think the last I heard, he had stakes in something like five or six listed companies. He owned a few shopping malls. Um, he probably has stakes in another 20, 30 companies and owns probably 50 over properties in town. That's what I hear. I could be completely wrong. Right. Um, that level. But no, you will never see him at any event. No rara, nothing. Um, that, but I mean like, okay, but at least you got to give me the name. Like Kang, Kang Soon. Yeah. And then how can I, well, the nope. surname? I'm not going to try anything. Okay. That's it. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he always wanted his uh, privacy for himself and his family. So, yeah, and he's, he's, he's amazing. Mm. I miss him. Are there any uh, routines or habits that you find important? Morning, evening? Um, going home and spending half an hour to an hour alone, uh, just reflecting on the day. I think it's very important. Um, it's kind of like a feedback loop. Engineer, you know, must have feedback loop uh, of what has happened in the day, what were the decisions, what were the outcomes, and then looking back and seeing um, where I could improve on. I and is this just like uh, you have a journal that you write on? Oh, no. Or before you sleep or like right no. after dinner? Yeah, when I get home. I get home very late every night. So I'll just sit there and I'll, I'll, I'll think. What are some of the most common misconceptions about you or your work? That I actually know what the hell is going on and I've actually uh, contributed to the whatever success Hope Technique has achieved. I think that's a misconception. Mm. I think the reality is that there's an entire team uh, starting with the other co-founders, our investors, uh, and definitely each and every one of our teammates. Uh, that's really the magic. I mean, it's, I find it really sad that I can't find a way to really showcase them because that is really what the company is about. Yeah. Mm, are there any asks or requests for the audience, last parting words, thoughts to take away, to consider, or to try? I think we should not assume that our future is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. um, definitely coming from this little red dot. I think we should, we should collectively worry about what we will all be doing tomorrow. Um, don't cruise. Um, and once we realize that we have to start moving, um, hunt in packs. 
and let's create a future that um, our children will have in the same way that our forefathers did for us. Uh, any upcoming projects that people can look forward to? I think it's time for us to take our exoskeleton program that we've hidden for the last eight to nine years <laughs> uh, more public. Okay. I, I'm not kidding. Um, Finally. We watched Iron Man the movie. Finally, got to pick out the Iron Man suit. <laughs> ago, and we started working on something. Um, and we've been working on it ever since. Uh, I think there's going to be the next one that's going to be Nice. Nice. Uh, right. Is it uh, next year or is there a, a certain month? Or I, I think comfortably it'll be next year. Later I, part or early? Early. Uh, there's oh, a okay. little boy in me which is like really bubbling with excitement. All right. Uh, I'm excited too. <laughs> I mean, come on. Who would, as much as I like Batman the movie, I really like Iron Man the movie too, you know? Oh no, I like Iron Man. And Man, I got sure. teammates in the office that are really actually... Is it rain in color? Hi. You can have it in any color you oh, want as long as you pay for it. Even better. <laughs> uh, well, I guess where uh, can people find you or your project on the interwebs? Yeah, uh, www.hopetechnique.com. Fantastic. Hey, yo, people. It's over. As usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on the website brianvictor.com. Brian with a Y. And uh, since you guys have listened to the end of this episode, I kind of want to uh, seek your help over here. Basically, I kind of feel I am hitting a glass ceiling uh, over here in Singapore um, on the people I want to talk to. So I want to crowdsource this to anyone. Do you feel that there's any interesting folks around town that you'd like to hear from? Uh, please let me know. Also, I'm heading down to the U.S. very soon. Um, so if you have anybody in the U.S. that you think you're, you want to learn more from, uh, feel free to send me an email or however you want to contact me. Send that over. Send that list of interesting folks over and I would love to hear from you. Uh, thank you again for giving me your time and listening to this episode. Have a fantastic week ahead. Hey.